This is the Comp Effect Podcast. When you focus on workers' compensation, you'll have a safer work environment, more productive staff, lower expenses, and you'll crush your competition. We're sharing real-world stories, actionable tips, business-friendly advice, and information to help your business. I'm your host, Todd Tams. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to this episode of Comp Talk. I am your host, Todd Tams, and today we've got a great speaker here for you. Um, It's amazing that as I started out on this track with the podcast, we've met one great person after another great person. And I found this guy today, his name's Don Finn, and we have so many friends in common and I just discovered him. He's an inspirational speaker, a business advisor, a coach. He talks to C-suite executives as well to insurance agents. He is going to drop some knowledge on us today like we've never heard before. And Don, just, (laughs) dude, thanks for coming by. No, thank you for having me. So originally, uh, I, I reached out to you um, from a referral from Kevin Ring at the Institute, and I wanted to find somebody who was an expert on things that, uh, like I wanted to talk about how workers' compensation impacts FMLA, ADA, group benefits, all that stuff. And then through our communications, you've got stories, you've got a book out, you've got uh, HR best practices. I mean, there's so many things we can talk about today, but why don't you just start and give us a little bit about the story of who you are? Thank you. Um, first of all, you'll hear my Bronx accent, right? So that's where it all started. And at 20, I moved out to California to work on a tuna boat in San Diego, and I never left. So that's where I am today. Um, I was a trial attorney until I was 40. So until I was 40, most of my representation was of individuals against companies. I did a lot of the original sexual harassment, those types of cases. But then things got more sophisticated and I started doing glass ceiling cases. And I ended up in my career representing nuclear power plant whistleblowers. So that's when my job became like a John Grisham novel. All right. And, uh, litigated those cases. I never lost a case I took to trial and litigated those cases for six years. They never let me take them to trial. And both my clients and I said, this is enough of the justice system. And that's when I quit. And they said, get whatever money you can. We're out of here. Okay. So after I did that, I could, a, a divorce attorney can tell people what they shouldn't do in their marriage. An employment lawyer can tell people what they shouldn't do in their relationships at work. And so I was very good on the risk management side. I also became the editor of Ermi's Employment Practices Liability Journal at that time, which I have been now for 20 years. Wow, okay. So at, and, and at that time, I was doing turnaround consulting and doing it very successfully, but the internet came along and I said, here's a chance to leverage myself. So I began putting, as one of the first companies to create a lot of online HR tools, build employee handbooks, sexual harassment training, uh, checklists and forms and all that. And I was the hotline. So I, over the years I had that company, I must have answered some 5,000 calls from people from all around the country. All right. So you've seen it all and you've heard it all when it comes to- uh, Literally, uh, literally. <laughs> um, this, uh, as I say, the truth is stranger than fiction. And I eventually ended up running into Preston Diamond because he thought that the, the brokers need to know this business about ADA, FMLA, and work comp, what we refer to as the Bermuda Triangle because it's so easy to get lost in it. And I also started teaching them about emotional intelligence and sales, which was a very unique conversation that I have. So I did that for many years to Preston, and I eventually sold that company in 2014 to ThinkHR, who is a beast in the environment. Basically, they started on the benefit side. They brought me in to understand the PNC side. I worked with them for two years. And so since 2017, I've been on my own and I continue to do a lot of speaking, uh, consulting. Um, I, I get pulled in for an expert testimony or an investigation now and then, but I tend to prefer the speaking and the coaching and the advising. So that's, that's where I'm at this point. Okay. Got it. That's a lot going on. I think uh, you mentioned Think HR. I think they're a great company. They're doing a lot of cool things right now. Um, just a great resource if you're going to. And by the way, we don't get paid from Think's HR. I mean, I just no, like neither their do I anymore. <laughs> I, I do have some stock left in them, though. You know, <laughs> hopefully the next round is the last one. Um, but they renamed to Mineral, 
you know, that is a big decision they made as they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, like if some companies call themselves Apple or something or Augusto or something like that. So uh, they did their work and called them, call themselves mineral and partially because they merged mammoth HR out of Portland with think HR out of California. Uh, and they really, it's a great synergy. So I still work with them here and there on things, but what am I going to share today that I think would be helpful for everybody? And, and first of all, I want to share some of the, the conversation around math that I have because most of these business owners and no, most of the brokers don't really know the math of HR. And I'll include in that the work comp challenges, the modifier stuff. So as you know, the work comp, what I'll call modifier, is the most expensive money that you borrow in your business. So obviously somebody gets injured, they, they, they miss time from work, they have medical expenses, those are paid out by an insurance company. Insurance companies don't pay claims, they finance claims. And if you look at the finance rate over those three years, it, it can be double figures very easily, 18%, 15%. Um, when you've got a, an environment where people are getting three to 5%. You know, it's so talk about expensive money to borrow. That's one reason why we tell everybody pay the wages and really monitor the health care, you know, the, the health expenses. So put them on light duty, which we'll talk about a little bit on the Bermuda Triangle. So don't let them sit home and collect the paycheck. So, Don, to your point, we I have been banging this drum for years now. When we do mod review, when we do mod reviews, like what you're talking about. And I think specifically you're talking about when you look at that worksheet, you see the claim that's a five, a nine, something that's got indemnity that's been paid out to it. Mm-hmm. And the goal that I'm looking for is the, the employee who was injured, who was off of work for a week, that the business let the insurance company pay that claim. And that claim now suddenly may move the mod, the, the scenario that we just did, move the mod five points. So this client's paying $60,000 a year in workers' compensation premium. The mod's five points. It's going to cost them $3,000 a year over the next per year times three years. So $9,000 of money that they're going to pay to the insurance company when they could have written a check for $500 with a payroll. For one week. For one week. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. When you say that's the most expensive money you'll borrow, it's highway robbery. And every business owner I talk to says, well, the insurance company never told me. They're not going to. No, no, it's not their job. <laughs> their job is to pay the claim. It's your job to manage the claim. And it's our job as, as brokers and agents to educate businesses on the right way to manage that claim. Absolutely. And, and the, other, the other flip side of it is as we started to discuss most of the, I speak to a lot of CEOs. I've spoken to over 6,000 CEOs. So I've spoken to the entire, the PNC broker community for years, but also a lot of the CEOs. And one of the things I do is I teach them the math of HR because even HR people don't know the math of HR. Uh, nobody got into HR to know math, okay? No. And so we talk about the cost of a claim. We talk about the cost of turnover. We cost of, about the cost of non-productivity and disengagement, all those things. And we live it in the world of cost. And what I learned dealing with those CEOs is they get the logical aspect of cost. They're logical, smart, IQ people. They get the, the logic of cost, but they're not emotionally engaged by cost. They're emotionally engaged by revenue. I do not want to work for a CEO who's more emotionally engaged about cost than they are about revenue. That's the wrong CEO to work for, right? So you can be HR, you can be in risk management talking about cost, cost, cost. Somebody comes in from sales and marketing says, I have an idea to bring in more revenue. All of a sudden the light bulbs, you know, you see that side of the brain start firing, right? So I spoke at two CPA conferences in a row and I wanted to understand the relationship between those out-of-pocket dollars and the money that has to come in to replace those out-of-pocket dollars. And the closest term I could get to that is marginal replacement revenue. Okay. So th- let's say the modifier in that situation costs nine grand. That nine grand is literally out of pocket. Just take it right out of the owner's pocket. All right. Now, in order to break even, not to get ahead, but just to break even on that nine grand, I asked the CPAs, how much will the typical company have to bring in? 
And the first thing I learned from them, it's not an ROI figure because you have all these fixed overheads anyway. The building is still there. The marketing budget is still, all those things are fixed pretty much. What you're really looking at is the marginal revenue coming in, the money's coming out of that, sales commissions, marketing expenses, taxes, um, onboarding, uh, all those things that come out of those dollars. And what he told me, he, many of these CPAs told me, was that the ratio is most conservatively at four to one. So a dollar comes out of pocket, you have to bring $4 in top of the line. Okay. Even with the fixed overheads, there's those, there's those active dollars you're taking commissions and everything out of. And at some companies, it'd be six or seven to one. You may have a Facebook type company that has incredible revenue per employee because a SaaS-based company that might be down to three to one. But that's, so typically four to one to six to one is the range when I talk to the CEOs, all right? Now, that $9,000 problem just became at the minimum a $36,000 problem. Agreed. And this is true with turnover. So I had a client with a call center, you know, where there's high turnover, there's also high work comp claims, right? So they had, they had a million-dollar turnover of a $4 million call center payroll. So that million dollar turnover was expensive. And we, we got them to reduce that by 20%. So reduce it by $200,000, which at their company was the equivalent of $1 million. And so I asked the HR executive, uh, what do they give salespeople who sell a million dollars? Oh, they get trips. I said, good, let's get you a trip. She got, an, for her and her husband, a 10-day all-paid vacation trip to Fiji on one of those huts over the water kind of thing. Ooh, you not. pretty. Okay? Yeah. Because the CEO got it when she explained that, look, I just saved us $200,000 in out-of-pocket expenses, which is equivalent in our company of a million dollars in new revenue. And so she got rewarded appropriately. Well, to your point, I think I, the, the mindset is always grow, grow, grow. It's sexy to grow. It's sexy to say, hey, we're up 20% this year. It's not sexy to say, hey, we cut work comp costs by three points. I mean, but that's to your point, that's what's going to help grow that top line and make a business stronger yeah. and better all the way around. So, so for both the CEOs and, you know, one of the things I would want to know if I was speaking to a company, can I speak to the CEFO so I can understand what that ratio is at your company? Many of the CEOs know it. I said, you know, that marginal replacement revenue ratio and some of them know it and some to say, no, but I am after today, I'm going to find it out. Right. So that's something I would want to know both as a business owner and somebody trying to sell to business owners, right? So, so I can expand the conversation a little bit, right? So that, that's one thing I really learned about getting leverage on them. The other thing that's interesting, and I learned this from a, one of the best brokers I ever met, is so many people come in and really try to magnify the pain of that modifier. And I get all that, but after a while, people are tired of that drumbeat. Everybody tries to put them into pain. You know, they say uh, pain pills sell for more than vitamins, right? But one of the best brokers I ever met said, why would I want to put anybody in pain? Well, isn't there enough of that out there? They're, they're, they're already seeing me for a reason. Mm -hmm. So what he, what he does so successfully, when single most successful insurance we're a comp broker I know, okay? Uh, out of all of them that I've met, number one was Rancho Santa Fe Rich, okay? He'll find out, he'll ask him, how did you get so good at manufacturing? How long did that take? Good, if you do what you did there and bring it over to managing this problem, you'll have the same result here. So he uses what I'll refer to as the energy where they have it and bring it over to where they need it. Okay super successful, you know? So he's not trying to make them feel bad about themselves. He's trying to say, you know, if this is amazing, you built this business. He does what I call finds the good in them and brings it over to where they need it. So what you're talking about, this, I love this, is there's a value that a broker brings to the insurance equation. And I think the, the first broker starts out, let me quote your insurance and see if I can save you money. That, 
that doesn't last. There are plenty, there are plenty of people who shop like that too. So yeah, the clients you don't want, right? That's exactly right. But to, to have the best brokers ever, as you call it, to walk in and say, hey, we've got a problem here. Let's identify what the problem is. Let's identify what the solution is. And to your point, let's not make it painful. Let's make it better. Let's get rid of it. A high mod is a symptom of a, of a problem that occurred in the past. What are we going to do to not have that going forward? Yeah. And it's something to, you just didn't pay attention to because it wasn't scratching you too hard. Now it is. And now you're here, right? Yep. Totally get it. So that's a, that, that's a lot of the conversation. And that's true with the cost of turnover, you know, to replace a $50,000 employee might be $50,000 or more, or an equivalent of $200,000 in new revenue. How are you going to get two hundred grand? I was working when we lived in West Palm, I was working at Slayton Insurance with a buddy of mine, Les Breedlove. And there was an auto dealer down there that I helped for many years, a, a chain of them. I'll keep the name out of it, but they lost two of their longtime admin staff, $35,000 type people back then. So you're talking 70 grand in the aggregate. And I said, you know, that's at the minimum going to cost you 50 grand to replace, minimum. And I, said, and I did my research and I learned that he puts in his pocket, every car sold out on a lot, 500 bucks. That's what he gets to keep out of everything. A new car sold because they're all financed, you know. So he gets to keep 500 bucks in the pocket. I said, okay, come outside and let's look at that lot. How many cars will you have to sell out there to put 50 grand back in your pocket? And he knew the answer was 100. Mm-hmm. And he's looking at that. I said, how are you going to sell those? What, what, you have to now sell an additional 100 than you did before those ladies left. How are you going to do that? You're going to hire a new salesperson? You got a new sales technique and run more ads? What, how are you going to get that extra 100 car sold? And all of a sudden, he really woke up to uh, connected dots and light bulbs go off, right? It's funny that... Uh... <laughs> Your story right now hits home because I've had the same conversation with three people about a particular business that we all do business with and whatever has gone on in that company, um, the, the cracks are showing on the outside, the cracks are showing in service, the cracks are showing in how they appear. There's employee turnover in their absolute busiest season and the experience that that business is delivering. And I'm going to keep the business's name out of it has done nothing but infuriate everybody who's used them in the past. And just what they've done in the last week alone, every person I've talked to, and I actually had a guy call me yesterday out of the blue to tell me about his bad experience at this business because he knows I go there and I had the same one to share with him. And he says, I found a new company. They take care of their employees better. The experience from when I walked into the door to how they handled my problem to the minute I left, he's like, I'm never going to go anywhere else. They're my new person. And we are in an experienced economy. There is absolutely no doubt about it. I, I go shop, you go shop. I don't care if it's professional services or doctors or hamburgers, you know, where I have the best experience. Yeah. And yeah. I think that there's been a shift in that over the last 20 years, creating that customer experience and that customer value. You certainly know when you have it and it's easy to identify when it doesn't exist. Hmm. And when I have it, I want it and I want to go back there because that's the way I want to be treated. And that's the one I want. That's the way I want to be valued. That's why we talk about this with work comp. Take care of your employees on their worst day. Make them loyal employees. Give them the best experience. And they're going to be a champion for your company in the long term. I give a simple example. Out here, we have this wonderful culinary delight called In-N-Out Hamburger. (laughs) I don't know if you've experienced it here in California, right? But they, many years ago, said, we're all competing for the same pool of talent And what's most important for that level of talent is how much they get paid. You look at Maslow's hierarchy, they're still in survival mode when you're getting low wages, right? They're not worried about self-actualization or ego. They're worried about the wolf at the door, right? So when you pay an extra buck 50 an hour, you're able to take the top of the top 10% to come work for you. They have the lowest turnover, lowest work comp claims, highest customer satisfaction, and it all backs up to that extra buck 50 an hour. And you would think that the empty lines at McDonald's and Taco Bell would figure this shit out, but they don't. They don't. They're still trying to pay as little as they can. And as when you pay peanuts, you get monkeys and you get turnover and you get work comp claims. Absolutely. We have a similar chain out here in the Midwest called Culver's. And they came out of the marketplace. They paid their people top dollar. I've had, uh, I've had ice cream at a culvert. Yeah, yeah. They don't, they don't have the same problems that 
the, you know, the, the other, we're not going to single up fast food restaurants, but I see fast food restaurants closing. I see now hiring things on the door. I don't see those problems at Culver's. Yeah. Same at Chick-fil-A is the other example. Yeah. There you go. Bingo. The other example. So a lot of this, you know, there's a lot of factors that are involved in it, but let's now kind of shift over to this business about the Bermuda Triangle. And there's, and it's not just ADA, FMLA, workers' comp. Um, there may be some pregnancy stuff. There may be some benefit stuff. Uh, there may be other types of things going on there. So, so when you say Bermuda Triangle, you mean FMLA, ADA, and work comp? Yes. Okay. That's the classic Bermuda Triangle because, of course, it's so easy to get lost in it, right? Yes. And, and a lot of people aren't thinking that there's these multi-things going on. So it's almost a matter of excluding things out. So somebody gets injured at work, it's clearly a work comp situation. Well, is it also an FMLA situation? Well, FMLA requires you to have 50 or more employees. They have to work for 1,250 hours. They have to be so many people within 75 miles. So it's a, just a matter of, are these people eligible for FMLA? Because if they are, then you want to make sure it runs concurrently. One of the biggest mistakes we make is not starting that clock on the FMLA because then they come out of the work comp claim that you don't run the FMLA, something else happens, they're sick and they want to take another 12 weeks off. You haven't used up the 12 weeks. So even if they don't request FMLA, the first thing everybody should do is to put people on notice that the FMLA is running now that you're out, you're not coming to work. And it could be even if they're coming to work part-time, FMLA applies part-time as well. So, you know, using up those total of 12 weeks, whether it's a straight 12 weeks or intermittent leave, as they say, that's the first thing is FMLA involved. And that requires you to maintain their healthcare for those 12 weeks. Some states have moved off the 50 benchmark and to lower numbers at 25 or 20 or something like that, all right? FMLA is very form-driven. Right? So there's the, the Fed requires you to give somebody a form to fill out all of that. And even if they don't go filling out the form and if they're out on work comp, there's the medical documentation there, you still say your 12 weeks are running, all right? So that's the FMLA. So Do you just have give, any questions about the FMLA stuff? I, I don't, but just to bring this into focus here, we had a client reach out to us where they've got a, a worker who is, for whatever reason, unable to return to work. And their question was, how long do we have to pay health benefits for? Because they're not at work. And that led into this podcast and led into the contact with you. Because here's a, this was a firm that's probably got 65, 70 people on staff that are, that they are entirely unaware of how this whole entire process works. And it's not intentional. It just doesn't happen to them all that often. They don't know what they don't know. Right. They don't know what they don't know, which is going to go back to, this is not necessarily my realm of expertise. We rely on HR professionals. We rely on companies and human resources companies, such as Think HR to come in and manage this whole entire thing. Yep. That's, that's where I'm going to refer off to because I don't want to have to have the liability, the ins and outs, or I don't have time in my day to deal with necessarily the detailed questions like this and how everything impacts. So if you're an agent and you're not talking to your clients about this or you're a business and you've never heard of this before, I would wrap yourself in some HR professional people right now to build out a written program for you. So that way, when this first claim happens, if it's not happened to you before, you know exactly how it's going to work and you can spell that out to an employee. Fair enough? Absolutely. And, you know, some of the brokers, especially as they get larger, some will even have full-time HR people on staff or even full-time employment lawyers on staff and benefit lawyers and ERISA lawyers and stuff like that. And I know one of them in uh, Pasadena, Bolton, really successful agency out here in California, they have a whole suite of professionals on staff just devoted to their clients. You know, they, they do very well. I think they might've just been acquired. So the, the first thing, you know, it, it's a very clear work comp. Now, one of, as you know, one of the mistakes people make is saying, well, maybe we shouldn't follow work comp because maybe it didn't really come from work. Maybe it's from their soccer. Maybe we can save a few bucks. And that's the biggest mistake because, again, then you, you lose protections of work comp. 
but I'll never forget one of the CEOs told me, he goes, you know, I had an experience where one of the managers was saying, you know, we, we, this guy's got back problems and he thinks it's work related. Um, but I don't think it's work related, but we submitted the claim anyway. And what the doctors found out is they had a tumor at the bottom of his spine, having nothing to do with work comp. But had they not sent them to that physician, this guy most likely would have died from that tumor. So that was a, a little lesson that CEO learned that day. Say, you don't know what you don't know about this stuff, what's yeah. really going on, All right? And to so, your point, recently we did a, we did an episode on fraud. There is very little work comp fraud that occurs at the individual level. Most of your employees, it, it's always amazing to me. You personally, somebody in your business personally hired and vetted your employee to begin work there. So you trust them at some level, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that the, all your employees are, you're hiring bad employees if you think they're going to be submitting fraudulent work comp claims. <laughs> I mean, you're hiring a body to fill a position that you, you've got poor hiring practices, I guess, is what I want to say in that scenario. But back to the original point, um, we had Sam King on with employers. The majority of fraud that occurs in their workers' compensation company is not employee-driven. It's provider-driven. Fake <laughs> billing, fake referrals, fake everything, and it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So to your point, turn the claim in. It'll be okay. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then at least you can start managing the care. Okay. Yep, absolutely. And, and, that, and that's the other part of it, obviously. And I'm sure you preach this to everybody. Uh, brokers don't, who do not help manage claims are brokers who don't stay around very long. You know, you, you've got to have some good claims manager because, as you know, all the underwriters got rid of their claims managers and, you know, because they can just throw the cost to the employer. And so why, why should we bother saving costs when we can just pass it on and make a buck out of it? Yeah, there, there, I think the reality is, uh, as an agency owner myself, we're seeing more things pushed on to the local agents, and there's only so many hours in the day right now. I mean, just in an industry, you're right. We're supposed to be claims managers, claims advocates, quoting machines. Um, we're doing everything on our own right now, and it's becoming harder and harder, I think, for a lot of agencies out there just to keep up with all the things that are required for them to be proficient in their position. And, and the challenge of being a mom and pop agency and not having enough revenue to leverage an individual to be a claims manager. Bingo. Yeah. So the, the, the second part of it is the ADA. And the ADA is 20 or more. In California, it's five or more. And that's basically about whether or not somebody can be accommodated to do the job they were hired for, right? So when we talk about work comp, somebody's injured, let's say, I'll give you an example. Let's say that they work in a warehouse and they're required to lift 50 pound bags in a warehouse, but they get injured and they're at least temporarily limitation to lifting no more than five pounds, okay? okay. So you can put them on light duty and say, all right, then we're just going to have you do this. We'll take that out of your job description. We'll just have you do this. Um, we might even reduce your pay to that light duty position so that the people who are working, they don't feel like, hey, you're getting paid more than me to do my job. So, you know, that's you got to deal with the politics of that one. So light duty is an option in that situation. The other option is to accommodate somebody so that they can lift the 50 pounds. And it's the employee has the right to both. The, the employer wants to do the light duty so they don't sit home collecting a paycheck. The employee might not wanna stop doing that job if there's a lifting mechanism that's readily available for them to lift the 50 pounds. And then the question is, is it an undue hardship to buy that equipment and use that equipment, All right? Uh, an example, nurses have had a challenge with patients getting heavier and heavier and heavier over the years. So they're getting more and more and more lower back and similar challenges. So what did they start to do? They started using lifting beds. Mm -hmm. Now, lifting beds is the equivalent of that forklift that can lift to 50 pounds. They're using not just lifting beds for people who are injured. They're using it to avoid injuries now. Okay. So that, yep. that, that mechanism 
that can lift to 50 pounds may be a good investment overall instead of having anybody lift 50 pounds. Okay. So there's this weighing and what's very important for people to understand is the term undue hardship. And it's very hard to say in advance that this will be an undue hardship. Unless, you know, if the, if the lifting mechanism is a $50,000 machine, well then, and that's for one person, one time, that's probably an undue hardship. But Fair if enough. it's a large company, they've got a l- large number of these types of claims, because if it's Amazon, you know that there's, enough numbers there that buying that machine would not be an undue hardship in order for that person to do their job. So one of my favorite resources is for ADA accommodation is Jan, J-A-N. Can I actually share my screen? Uh, Sure. Let me go do that. So I'm going to go, hold on. I love this resource and I told, turned so many people onto it. So let me, uh, we'll make sure we post it in the show notes also with a link. So it's, is it www.jan.com? Yeah. No, it'll be askjan.org. Okay. So if you just type in JAN, you either get Jacksonville airport or you get Jan. Okay. Job accommodation network. (laughs) Now you look at this and you look at, the A to Z of disabilities and all the types of things that somebody, so somebody at work from over time can start having chronic pain, accommodating employees of chronic pain, things to consider, key accommodations. This is the resource and it's paid by the Department of Labor. It's housed at a university of West Virginia. I've worked with these people for close to 20 years and it is the most amazing resource. And, and I like to be able to say, even as an attorney, that if somebody's got a challenge, I will check with Jan. So my client can say, not only do we have the, we talk to our attorney, but we also talk to Jan. What more can we possibly do? I, I didn't even know that that existed until today. No, no, very few. And, and you're paid, it's a government, you already paid for this service, right? And one of the concerns people are, I don't want to go to OSHA. I don't want to go to Jan because then I just going to open up the door to them coming in and causing problems. Jan has never done that ever, because they know that would cut people down from using them. So they're just amazingly helpful. I love amazingly it. helpful. Right, so that's that. on the ADA accommodation. Now, a couple of things around this. The ADA is not a form driven process like the FMLA is. But California actually, even though not legally required to do so, produce a form similar to an FMLA form for ADA accommodation that I tell everybody, just use that form. Okay. And I can show you, I'll send you a note uh, with a link to that form for them to use. It just takes you through that whole accommodation process. Right? So you're just saying like the use the California very, form nationwide. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it's, it's a thinking in a form that's what's helpful. All right. And one of the things, whether it's FMLA or ADA or work comp, is to get your medical certifications. Uh, Don't assume anything. Make sure you have medical certifications. And the thing to realize with ADA is we think in terms a lot about disabilities, but what you're really looking at is limitations. Mm -hmm. You don't even need to go down a disability avenue. If somebody's injured on a work comp claim, they probably fit the definition of disability. The question from the physician standpoint is what's the limitation? Well, they can only lift five pounds or they can only work 30 hours or whatever the thing is that the limitation is because that's where you focus the accommodation, okay, around the limitation. So a couple of things that come up in this whole world. um, The first thing we want to make sure is that we have a good process in place for people to ask for leave, any kind of leave. So the handbooks will have FMLA, ADA, workers' comp, pregnancy, whatever else it is, but there should be an umbrella policy that says, no matter what the leave is, here's how you begin this process. Here's who you go to. And I'm not depending on the size of the organization, I'm not a big fan of having a supervisor managing a whole bunch of legal stuff. 
unless they've got an incredible training around it. I'd rather have them go to the HR person. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, because most of the time the supervisors are unaware of some of the rules and regs that the HR supervisor knows. And therefore, they may make a wrong decision that ends up putting that company in jeopardy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So whether yeah. the HR has to be involved, even if you go to the supervisor and the supervisor can't make a decision until they go through the, the checklist with HR. So that's one of the main things. The, the, the second thing is I like taking a checklist approach to any risk management. Check the boxes. Okay. Absolutely. Have we considered this, 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 right? So on, on any type of leave, whether it's work comp or FMLA or ADA, have a checklist approach to the whole thing. Another problem we have to watch for is our policies. So traditionally, before ADA came along, people would say that we're only going to run light duty for 90 days. They they would put a cap on the time of light duty, and they they cut it off. Well, that's not the law of ADA. So sometimes if you're willing to give people light duty under work comp as in a sense, accommodation under work comp, guess what? Light duty now becomes an accommodation under ADA because if you don't give it to somebody who's disabled under ADA, now you're discriminating. So if you give it to these people but not to these people, you're discriminating. So light duty can be considered a reasonable accommodation under ADA and there's no prohibition on you bringing the wage rate down to where it should be for that position. Do you think that's a good idea for most companies to, if, if maybe this is a temporary position, and when I say temporary, maybe it's six, eight months, to really reduce the wage for that worker who's probably already struggling financially anyway because if uh, they're again, on. Again, it's, it, the challenge is, you know, anytime somebody's incentivized, it can be manipulated. So somebody says, hey, this is great. This is low pressure work. I'm getting paid what I used to work. Why would I get better? All right. And you've got the coworkers saying, this is bullshit. We know you're getting paid the same amount as you were getting paid and you're doing the work that we're doing. Why don't we all get the same raise he just got? Uh, again, it's up to each company, but just know that those are the issues that show up. Okay. So then to your point, I would take that one step farther and spell that out in the policy manual of this is exactly what's going to happen. So the day that you're hired and they're going through that policy and procedures menu with that new employee, they know what's going to happen if they're injured on the job and they have to have a reduced light duty return to work program in a different department. That'd be yeah, fair and the I, possibility is that the, depending on the nature of the light duty and the length of it, there may be a reduction in your wage. Uh, because again, we have to, the people who are doing that job, we have to keep them happy as well. Now, they'll get a partial payment out of work comp for the difference in the wages. All right. So again, it's it's this balancing act all over the place, right? Which then that goes back to if we can eliminate any indemnity payments by the insurance company, that is better for the business because it's going to keep the work comp mod lower. It all depends literally how much abuse is in the system. Oh, Don, this whole thing just gets so convoluted. It does. It does. There's a lot of a lot of moving parts, as they say. Right. Mm-hmm. So making sure you know how to request leave, making sure your policies that are related to one aspect of leave don't impact the other aspects of leave, you know, like only 90 days on light duty. Well, now you're fired. Whoa, 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 whoa. You, you're still the com- accommodation conversation. You know, I think you can accommodate me to do my job. So let me talk about it. Yeah, you really need One to One of the have... things that came up that you asked me about, let me say, came up was a business about how long do we pay their healthcare premiums, All right? Mm-hmm. So that's what came up. And this is something I have gone back and forth with underwriters and employers forever, right? So there's a clause in just about every insurance agreement, health insurance agreement that says that the employee has to be actively employed. This is so you don't bring your uncle Louie onto your company's policy, right? Who doesn't work for you, right? But you want to give him coverage. So somebody has to be actively employed. And if somebody is on FMLA, they're actively employed by definition. 
However, if they're on long-term ADA, they may no longer be actively employed. And if they are on leave, long-term leave under work comp, they may not be actively employed, requiring you to issue COBRA. So the way you cover your rear end on all this is you go to the underwriter and say, listen, we've got somebody on leave. Will you allow us to continue to pay his premium or will we have to, are we forced to issue a COBRA at this point? So you just throw the ball into the underwriter's court to find out because each underwriter is going to have a different answer about what is actively employed. There's no legal definition about it. It's, it's that policy definition of it. And so when we talk sense? about it, it makes sense. So we talk about policies. We're not only talking about insurance companies' policies, and they're all different from company to company and state to state. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. As another thing I would say, you know, just on another side, on employment practices liability policies, one of the mistakes people don't really get into is what is a triggering event. So when do, when do I have to report that somebody did something? And the definitions of those policies are not uniform. They're all over the place. Somebody, If somebody makes a verbal claim, that's enough of a triggering event. Uh, other companies, you got to get a lawyer for, a letter from a lawyer or from an agency to be a triggering event. So, <laughs> and they said insurance was easy. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's one, you know, Scott Addis, right? And you, uh, my guess is, you know, Chris Burand as well. Yeah. You know, well, they're both adamant about agents not being lazy in reading and knowing the policies. So, you know, if you're just trying to sell a policy to sell a policy, not knowing what the hell is in it, you're going to be subjecting yourself to claims. (laughs) Don, I'm in a lot of insurance groups and I don't, that's not a brag. There's just a, a vast number of insurance groups out there. And I'm amazed at the number of questions that, that even seasons agents will ask that could be resolved. And the thing is, I think they look kind of silly and they even look sillier to their peers because they're the answer to the question that they just posed is in the policy. Just read the policy. I can't tell you what's in your policy and every policy form is different from company to company and state to state. And then that even varies by what, what endorsement the insurance company or insurance firm rolled on there. That can amend the policy form. So it's, you got to go down the rabbit hole. You got to do the work. And that's the only way that we're all going to, that agents are going to get better. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And that's when they don't know this stuff is when they subject themselves to claims. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's why we so all carry kind of, no insurance, but yeah, to your point. That, that's kind of what I wanted to share about the, the, what I see as the main points in that Bermuda triangle the, the number one point, knowing it exists and that you're running a three-legged thing. The, the COBRA is the other thing you make sure whether or not they're going to be considered actively employed. Because if they're not actively employed, theoretically, the underwriter could deny coverage on a very significant situation. You know, let's say you get cancer at the same time they're out on a work comp leave. So let me ask you, I mean, this is kind of off topic here, but what about, or can you even speak to some of the new pop-up coverages we're seeing right now, like tuition reimbursement or um, uh, paying for, uh, you know, college right now, hey, continuing ed, but if you can't continue your college courses to get a higher level of education while you're actively employed because you had a work comp accident, I mean, how does all that work? I'm not on the underwriting side of work comp, okay? And I'm not a broker who sees all these little nuances. I see those on EPL policies, and I can talk about that all day long, but I don't want to pretend to be an expert about work comp underwriting. No, I'm sorry. I'm not talking work comp underwriting. I'm just I'm just going down a weird rabbit hole where maybe I'm, maybe I'm at a company that says, we're going to pay for your education at the end of the semester for advanced degrees, assuming that you finish the semester. Middle of the semester, you have a work comp claim. You're no longer actively at work. You're maybe having difficulty attending those college classes. So how you started the beginning of that semester is going to be a lot different than how you ended that semester, especially if you're going to qualify for potential FMLA leave. And so now I guess I'm in that, in that example, that injured workers having to pay for those bills that they thought would be reimbursed for by the company because they couldn't follow through with that plan. 
Doesn't Affleck cover that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I did read an interesting article the other day, and I don't know if it was uh, if it was it's an independent study, but it was produced by Affleck that they their their study said that workers' compensation claims go down when businesses purchase Affleck disability policies. And I think it was from 10 or 15 years ago was a report. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that there's some measure of correlation there, just how much of a causation versus correlation, you know, it's a big challenge. I'm actively looking and I haven't seen it yet, but for the last nine years, give or take, workers' compensation rates in most of the country have decreased. Yeah, because uh, there's less claims. We're, we're all over time having less blue collar workers and creating safer environments in general. I wonder if there's any correlation between that and the passage of the ACA. Now that everybody's got guaranteed issue coverage, we're subsidizing medical coverage for a large portion of the population. Could it have been that those workers' compensation policies were the first line of defense for people who did not have health insurance prior to 2014? Uh, I, I wouldn't I doubt that. And, and yet in business insurance the other day, I was reading an article about how many of these work comp claims are getting undermined by people's social media posts. What do you <laughs> well, mean? Uh, I'm supposed to be injured, but here's a picture of me playing in my soccer league and my buddies, you know, that night or skiing or doing something else, you know? Yeah. And to your point, <laughs> that's the first place underwriters, claims adjusters, anybody's going to go. They're going to do a social media search and they're going to find yeah. out what's going on. And yeah, people, but there's plenty of idiots out there. So there's, there's people not even thinking about, you know, connecting those dots. Not at all. And I think some of that stuff's private. So to your point, be careful what you're posting out there if you're claiming work comp medical leave. That's right. What else do you want to talk about today, Don? I think that's good. I, I think that without you know overwhelming people with too much information, that's the, I'm looking at my little notes that I want to make, make sure I pass on. Um, just remember that they run concurrently, all three of those things. And if well, you've got 50 employees, you're running all three of them. If you've got less than that, you're running at least two of them, maybe just the one of them. And my understanding, Don, is you want to run them all concurrently, but you need to have a written policy that says that prior to the claim. You don't need a written policy to do it. You just do it anyway. So uh, it's nice to have policies. To, the policies are helpful to tell people what they should do, okay? Um, you don't have to have every little conversation in a handbook and a policy. HR can tell you, you know, because not every employee is ever going to deal with it. If you get one out of 100 employees injured a year, what's the point of educating the other 99 if you don't have to? So you just educate that one, you educate all of them on how to file a claim. But once a claim is filed, then you do the education with that one person. I don't think you have to, in advance, educate everybody about everything. I'm sorry. I'm under the impression that you need to have a written plan in place that says, Work comp claims will run concurrently with FMLA. No, it's not required by law. You can simply just let them know, notify okay. them that the FMLA will start running concurrently. There you go. All righty. Yeah. Well, Don, it was great talking with you today. Honestly, learned a yeah. lot. Great information. Um, if that's it, I just have three other questions to ask you that'll, and then we'll wrap it up. Please. All right. So I ask everybody who comes by, what are you reading right now? Um, BE 2.0, which is, um, Jim Collins latest book where he goes back to dealing with entrepreneurial size companies. Okay. So that was his original thing. Cause it came out of Stanford entrepreneurial school and the same thing up in Boulder and his early work before good to great was really on the entrepreneurial side. Good to great comes along. This book is revisiting the work that he did earlier. And it's just excellent stuff all the way through. Is this the work he did prior to good to great? Is that, no, this is, is re that work revisited. Got it. All right. That's why it's 2.0. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, good to great. That was uh, every corporate America's book for that. They wanted mandatory reading for a number of years after he, he came out with that. And for good reason. And yeah. you know, his, his skill at doing this work hasn't diminished anybody. People just want a new shiny object. Right. So, but, but, this last book is really quality stuff. Good deal. I'll have to check that out. We'll post a link in the show notes. The other question I'm asking people right now, uh, I know we're maybe getting close to the pandemic being over, but uh, what are you spending more money on than you should? 
wine, tequila. <laughs> I, I can't, you, you, you can't spend money if you try is the problem, right? That's, that's about it. There you go. All right. And then uh, you get to wrap up and uh, tell everybody how they can get a hold of you and the best way to contact you, Don. Yeah. So my, my website is donfin.com, D-O-N-P-H-I-N.com. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking. Um, I've done a bazillion Zoom public workshops. I'm all set up in this place for that. Um, I also have a number of licenses of minerals. So if you don't have Think HR new name mineral as an employer from a broker, then you can always get it from me because that was part of my agreement with them when I sold the company that they give me some licenses to play with. Got it. So you'll help do demos or things like that of mineral to brokers out there that, or client or businesses that maybe want to test it out. No, what I do is I, I will sell an individual license. Got okay. It. I'm not selling the bulk licenses. That's their business. Okay. And in fact, one of the things that for years I preached with all of my clients that use HR that works, I didn't get to do as much preaching with think HR, but I wanted all my clients to charge their clients. Now, if you look, if you've got a, 50 grand premium, you're not going to nickel and dime for 200 bucks a month. All right. But if you're getting five grand and 10 grand premiums in from smaller employers, you want to charge them for this because the, 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 the problem with not charging for your value added, even whether it's mineral or anything else, is you don't have the money to service it properly. Agreed. To make sure people use it to check in and really, you know, educate around it, you know, uh, send out a monthly thing. Did you know about this in the program? Um, so that uh, to get those programs and let them just sit there, you're going to have, you know, one out of 10 people using them over a year. That's the reality of those programs. Two out of 10 people use them for a year. If you want usage out of it, you coach people and you make sure that you run the reports. They notice you haven't used the program because those programs are not just for, calling where there's a problem, that they're designed to present problems. So uh, have you used the handbook building? Have you updated your employee handbook? Have you uh, followed the, the, all the stuff they did? A great job with helping through COVID. So have you looked at all the suggestions and best practices around COVID in there? So just when you have, whether it's that program or any other program, and you charge it, people value what they pay for more than what they get for free. And Absolutely. now they think they're going to have to use it. And what you really want is them to use it. I, I, I think most companies are out there okay paying for that anyway. I agree. Yeah. And you know, One way or another, they pay at a decent rate. You're just going to say, look, one, one reason we charge you for it is, A, we pay for it. And B, we want to pro properly support it. And one of the biggest mistakes people do is they get these programs and then they don't support the programs, meaning they don't support the client. Agreed. Don, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate you stopping by. Appreciate you explaining Bermuda Triangle and how, how companies can successfully navigate FMLA, work comp, and ADA. Yeah. And now you know about Jan and I'll send you the California Disability Accommodation Form. How's that? All right. So uh, the California Disability Form people are going to be under the resources tab. And then the link for Jan's going to be in the show notes also. Don, thanks so much. We'll put a link to my website in there as well. Oh, we'll have that in there too, right. buddy. Okay. <laughs>